0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode number 11 of Talking to Unicorns. Today, we have another, well, we have a storyteller with us. Bex, how are you doing?
1: I'm great, Connor. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me all the way. I know you've just moved to Canada, so uh, we're on opposite sides of the of the day now. But um, look, it's great to meet with you. And uh, yes, I'm Bex DeProspo. I am the director and chief storyteller and yarn spinner at Authentic Storytelling. So I do kind of a range of different comms-focused work, and strategic comms, project management, business development, and live event production are basically the sort of key areas of my portfolio, although obviously the live event production part of of my portfolio which is usually about a third has uh, has dropped down to very little this year so i'm doing a lot more copywriting and comms and storytelling um but that's great because that's sort of where i started before i got into into the business and startup world and the live events world so it's kind of taken me back to those uh that english degree that i never ever thought would pay off so which uh-huh. is
0: great <laughs> awesome so um how long have you been uh doing all this like how long have you been working as a freelancer
1: um, so it's sort of on and off since 2016 um so i was previously a founder of my own startup which we can we can touch on a little bit later on but i i started doing freelancing to support that and i've kind of gone in and out of uh, of real world work in the time in between but i've been wholly working for myself uh now for the last year um so entirely freelance or or through my business as it were authentic storytelling uh so yeah sort of on and off uh, but now pretty much that's, uh, I think that's me for the for the duration. So I sort of finally made it work.
0: Awesome. So let's just dive into the kind of work that you do for clients. You already said you do like a lot of copywriting and storytelling, and you also do live events. Can you tell us a bit about the, the events work that you were doing before COVID?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, um, I, I've done a, a a range of study. I did an English master's and then I did an uh, MSc in sound design and then later a grad diploma in entrepreneurship and I've sort of hit all of those marks over my career. Um, But for about 10 years, uh, more even, all I was really doing was focusing on that live event sector. So I started off as a sound engineer mixing bands and stuff Um, and when I had spent too much time carrying PAs up and down ladders, I sort of transitioned into technical and venue management Uh, And actually one of the real world jobs that I went back to uh, after I wound down my last business was as manager of Christchurch Town Hall. So I spent about a year really working hard to get it reopened um, and basically got got the whole venue back up and running um, and had gave it everything I got and then decided actually I was a better fit for the sort of freelance and impact sector. So um, my most recent live events gig was as venue manager for Shed 6 up in Wellington Uh, which I did literally right before the lockdown. I was running a venue for uh, the International Festival of the Arts. Um, So that was music and theater and round the clock for a few weeks. And that's been pretty common for me over the last seven or eight years, where I'll just sort of step into a a venue management contract for a period and then step back out of it. So I'm sort of a pinch hitter, I guess. Uh, And I love that work, and I still do as much of it as I can, but definitely that's sort of on the back burner now. For 2020 until we sort of see how the world shakes out.
0: Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, actually, funny thing is, I, I did all the Facebook advertising for the um, NZ Festival. Did you? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 so that's funny. in places,
1: haven't we? Uh, yeah. Which is, which is amazing. So, and that was my first uh, Wellington Festival. I've done Christchurch, and I've done a bit of work in Auckland, and for uh, Festival of Colour done in Wanaka. But it was my first time in Wellington, which was just great. So hopefully that'll be that'll be a thing again in future, and I'll get the opportunity to go back.
0: That's super exciting. So then let's go to the other part of your freelancing work, which is copywriting and storytelling. So did you kind of start off with that in the event sector, or was that something that was completely separate from that? No, it
1: was really separate. So I was working as uh, I was running operations for the Performing Arts Department at ARA uh, Institute of Canterbury here in Christchurch. Um, and so I was doing all of the production management for NASDAQ and the Jazz School. And basically I was, I was in that role for about three years and I got to the point where I was sort of, I was doing more jobs than one person can do and I was trying to figure out the best way to kind of get value back out of that work. And so I went to my employer and I said, look, I, I'd like to take the opportunity since I'm here to study. Um, and so they fully supported me going back and getting a grad diploma in innovation and entrepreneurship. And that sort of and that was in 2015, 16. And it sort of spurned a whole new path for me in the impact sector, which is very much where this sort of comms and storytelling piece came in. As I say, I'd always sort of fancied myself a writer, but I hadn't really done it professionally. And then when I launched my own business off the back of that degree, the comms, marketing, writing PR part of it very much sat with me. Uh, my co-founder was much more sort of sales and production. And so that's just sort of how it split out. And as it turned out, I actually loved that part of the work. And so when I left Christchurch Town Hall, I reached out to a contact in the impact sector and said, hey, you're always up to stuff, what are you doing? And he said, do you wanna come and project manage this new initiative that I've started called Drinkable Rivers? We're gonna make the rivers of New Zealand drinkable. Can you help me figure out how? Um, And as it turns out, Drinkable Rivers has very much evolved into a storytelling platform. That's very much what our key offering is. So we've got this real-time data sensor that we've cited in the Otakuro, uh, which we're hoping to replicate as far and wide as we can. But the goal for the project as a whole is giving the rivers a voice. And so I came in as a project manager, but very much ended up in this comms-focused version of project management in the impact sector, which is so wonderful for me because it really pulls in skills from a bunch of different areas for me. And so that's the project that sort of sits at the corner, it's the cornerstone of my portfolio at all times. Um, And I'm always doing work for them whilst filling in work with other clients along the way.
0: That sounds like an amazing project. Um... It's
1: crazy and it's huge, but it's such a wonderful learning experience. I feel like I'm getting a PhD in water quality and data science. Yeah. which so i know
0: that, nothing about nothing so that brings up a really interesting point which is if you are a storyteller and you are responsible for the comms how do you um how do you basically get up to scratch fast with topics that you haven't heard about or things yeah. that are um
1: it's such a huge huge part of the work so and nobody in the core team for Drinkable Rivers is a water scientist so but that's part of the reason why we've chosen this storytelling focus because we we understand that mobilizing and engaging communities is much more about translating scientific information than it is about actually having a full complete understanding of that science. Um, So the most important thing I do and I do it every day is I try and surround myself with people who are smarter than me all the time. And I call them and ask them for their help. And most of them gratefully, graciously give it to me. Um, But I think one of the key things, and it's been such an important learning curve for me with drinkable rivers because there's a, in my perception, a really flawed narrative about freshwater in New Zealand, or a really incomplete narrative, which is, in Canterbury, I think, in particular, is quite damaging because it's, in you, you just get a constant barrage of media narrative and coverage that says that all the problems with our rivers are nitrates from agriculture, and that's it. Mm-hmm. When you start to look at urban rivers, it becomes so much more complicated than that. There's so many myriad factors that are affecting our waterways, and it's so important for me as the storyteller to convey that to residents here because it engages them, it empowers them, it gives them agency over that waterway to understand that they can be part of the solution rather than that there's just a problem that lives out here that has nothing to do with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of the storytelling I do that's been such a big challenge is taking, everyone wants it to be easy, right? They want to be able to point at a thing and say that's the thing. They want a narrative that's really straight line and so often it's not. So a big challenge for me has been writing copy that's inconclusive, but still making it compelling, right? So there's a story here, but it's more complicated than you want it to be. But like, here's all the ways in which that complexity is really interesting and can really captivate and can get you engaged with this problem and the solution for this
0: problem. Great. And so how do you communicate typically? Is it through email, social media? What is like the way that you tell your stories?
1: Um, so for Drinkable Rivers, I set up all of their platforms. I built and designed and copywrote the whole website. I, I en- engaged their social media presence across platforms. Um, we we do a lot of collaborative work as well. So like literally yesterday, we just released a film that we've made with some of the local water advocates. So I sort of production managed that film and did all of the arrangements around the shoot. And then I worked with the production company in, on the back end to help them shape the story. Um, And so it's it's really trying to just hit all those different marks. And again, that's a project for me, which is great, because it really hit all of those marks for me. Um, So anybody who's keen to see it, I think it's on tinyurl.com backslash drfilm. uh, And it's online now. And it's just a really beautiful history of the Avon River, um, which is quite, the narrative is quite gentle, but the message is clear, which is that the history of this river is still being written, and you are part of that. Right. And so that's, so yeah, it's really about trying to hit all of the different channels and look at as many approaches as you can. So much like you're doing with, with the video podcasts, trying to appeal to a wide range of audience through different channels.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I can definitely see why your event management experience can come in handy when you just suddenly go from being like the storyteller to basically facilitating the creation of all this content.
1: Yeah. I, when I was, um, when I co-founded my previous business, which I keep referencing, so a lot of people will know me from Anteater, which we can talk about in any level of detail if you like. Um, yeah. My co-founder, Peter, um, it was basically just the two of us and he always used to refer to me uh, in private and in public as the person who actually gets shit done. I'm the get shit done person. Um, and so I, I think that that has absolutely impacted every part of my career. Um, and so the storytelling is actually just the reflection. I like to think, think about the things that we've done and how we can do them better and and how we can improve them and how we can use those experiences to tell stories but yeah ultimately I'm a, I'm a boots on the ground person and I always have been I think that's like everybody in the events industry is right it's like it's the same as for everybody who's ever worked in hospital right you're just yeah. your boots on the ground and you're used to it and you you know you muck it and get your hands dirty which is great and that's a it's a wonderfully rewarding part of all of my work
0: yeah, that's amazing. Well, one thing that you've brought up a few times is that you work in the impact sector. And yeah. so I actually wanted to talk to you specifically around the types of clients that you work with and how you approach going after them. Um, is it like important to you that the businesses that you do work for um, basically serve a specific purpose to, the, to a community or to the New Zealand community?
1: Um, I think, look, In a lot of ways, that's the work that I most enjoy. So I've got a not-for-profit that I write uh, blogs and profiles for, for instance, and it's to try and help advance the philanthropy sector so that we're better focusing on regenerative projects, right? And I find that hugely rewarding, and it's a great piece of my portfolio. But ultimately, the work that I'll take is anywhere where I believe that I can add value. So my clients actually have a huge range, and especially post-COVID. So what's been awesome for me is through Unicorn Factory. I keep getting clients who have had to change direction strategically as a result of everything that's happened this year with COVID-19. And so I've got now I've got clients who are uh, working in the trades and construction industry, but have been waylaid overseas. Right, so they've got events and. Uh, training sessions happening here, but they can't be on the ground to promote them. So they need copy to do that. So I'm working with clients overseas who can't get back. I'm working with SMEs who have suddenly realized that they need to enhance their digital presence and their comms messaging because they've never had to do it before, but people Mm -hmm. aren't coming into shops anymore, right? So they need somebody to help. And so anywhere that I think I can add value, I'm pretty keen to talk. Uh, And I think that for me, every one of those contracts sort of engages a different piece of my writer's brain and I'm just really grateful for all of that because I think so often particularly in New Zealand where we've got this tall poppy thing right people have this really great product but they've had their head down or a service and they've had their head down working on it for a generation or more and they've never actually stopped to think about how they're adding value and how they can tell people about this wonderful thing that they're doing. And so that's sort of where I come in. I ask hard questions and I try and pull gems from them to figure out, actually, what is it that you're delivering? It Maybe not, it's not this product, it's this yeah. feeling, right? And so that's, that's sort of where I sit. Anywhere I can add value, I'm pretty keen to
0: talk. Yeah, it's so good to hear because um, especially, I know exactly what you mean. Post-COVID, a lot of businesses had to make a shift online and especially businesses who never can well never had to really yeah. you know so what are the what are the kind of problems that they come to you with like is it is it do they approach you with being like oh so we've had a store never had like anything online what do we do
1: I think probably the most common thing that's, I and mean, maybe it's actually just as a as a byproduct of people having more time to reflect over this recent period, is that a lot of times they businesses will have had a comms structure, for lack of a better word, so a few pieces of collateral and a couple of key messages or whatever that they've been using for years and years and years, and they've never been refreshed. Or interrogated or updated and so I think a lot of small business owners now are looking at that comms piece and going well actually this is something we haven't really addressed since we wrote a business plan maybe 15 years ago and so how do we look at now adapting that and trying to reach out to people and also like you know for me I'm always trying to look at how opportunities come out of difficult experiences right and so I think a lot of it is also helping businesses frame their comms in, in light of COVID-19 mm-hmm. to say, well, actually, there's some opportunities here. So you can't go and travel internationally right now. But here's another way that you can pamper or treat or bring luxury into your life through this mm-hmm. amazing product that we have to offer you, right? And so it is, it's trying to help them highlight positives in, in lieu of what are overwhelmingly challenging circumstances right
0: now. Mm, That's super interesting. Um, I actually want to just in light of you working with overseas clients, I Mm. wanted to talk to you about um, your experiences working remotely, because one um, big thing that we get is Um, before COVID-19 we had a lot of businesses who just don't have experience working with people remotely whereas now you don't really have a choice anymore so I just wanted to hear your insights on like what your experiences have been working remotely and what kind of um, you know reservations businesses might have hiring someone remotely for. Sure. Look,
1: I think it's, I mean, it's like with any new hire, right? A lot of it is credibility. Um, and in, in the freelance and sole trader space, a lot of it's word of mouth. Um, I think, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a means of work that is, that everyone is suited to. So I feel quite fortunate that actually I, in in a lot of ways, more productive working remotely. Uh, So my biggest distraction here typically is my cat, who'll be waiting at a door or a window meowing any minute now, because he likes to participate in my meetings. And when I'm talking on Zoom, he thinks I'm talking to him, so he talks back. (laughs) Um, Look, I think there's a couple of really important keys. And for me, I was so fortunate that I really set up a home office already about a year ago. um, And I was quite prepared when all of a sudden everybody was working remotely, for me, it actually wasn't a huge shift. And so like, there's some really important keys. I think some of them are around infrastructure. So making sure that you've got the tools that you need to do the the work that you wanna do at home. I think a lot of it is around researching platforms that help you be as productive as possible um, and stay as organized as possible. Right now, at at any moment, I, I seem to have between six and 10 clients on the go in any given week. So getting that organized so that I've got time properly earmarked for everyone is a really big thing um but for me I've always felt like office environments are actually quite distracting um I get derailed easily so if I can sort of put you know I'm an introvert if I can put my head down and just get on with stuff I'll plow through it but if I get you know somebody coming and asking me a question or offering me a cup or whatever I I tend tend to get derailed and find it quite difficult to get my way back Um, so yeah, I think it's giving yourself the the physical tools to succeed and the, the sort of software uh, and, and sort of soft skills tools to succeed, setting yourself up a really productive space. So I've got my standing desk here with my yoga ball. If I ever want to sit down, I get a nice view out of my garden um, and just a quiet, focused space, which for me feels really productive, but is separate from the rest of my living space as well. Um, so I think that's also really, really important. But I think for businesses, there's just going to be a mind shift around trust, right? It's, you know, there's, there's this perception that you have to be looking at someone to know that they're doing good work for you. Um, whereas my position has always been, you will know I'm doing good work for you because it will speak for itself. Uh, and I won't go disappear. You'll hear from me. You, you know, you'll get updates. You'll know what's going on. You won't feel like that I, you've, you've given me this project and then I've gone out in the wilderness and you never heard from me again. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of the onus is on us as remote workers to make sure that we're communicating really well with clients so that they know mm-hmm. what's going on. If there is a delay, if there has been a change in strategy or, or timelines or whatever, making sure that we're getting that information back to clients. And so mm-hmm. that might be a new skill set that a lot of people are learning on the fly as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Thankfully, as a, as a comms person, that's something that comes quite comfortably to me, although Mm -hmm. certainly other elements do not. I'm not the most technical person, so I certainly have some trouble with the infrastructure at points.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a fantastic tip. I honestly think that if you communicate well with clients and you let them know that you're there, it makes the whole process for everyone so much easier. So I think that's just such a great soundbite for anyone who is getting into remote working or businesses considering hiring someone remotely. Um, Yep. There's just one uh, other thing that I actually realized we could also talk about, which kind of relates to remote working. And that is, okay. we both worked from the biz dojos, but in different locations.
1: Which I didn't know. So you, which biz dojo were
0: you in? In Torrey Street.
1: Oh, okay. And so I was in the, the OG biz dojo here in Christchurch, um, which was uh, an amazing supporter of myself and my old business partner, Peter. Um, they took Excuse me. They took me and Peter in as anteater, um, as, as wayward entrepreneurial strays, and they looked after us for, I think it was almost two years. Uh, and I think that's one of the super important things in the freelance world is just building those networks around you. Um yeah. And making sure that you champion the people who are who are supporting you, which is part of the reason why I reached out and said, hey, look, I really want to do this because I think you've created this amazing platform and people should know about it. And I feel yeah. the same way about this dojo. They were so good to us. And look, to be honest, I love working at home, but I, st- I miss them sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a great environment and just so, so much energy and support. And just a really great experience of being able to work when I was like in that really frantic entrepreneurial phase of trying to get a business off the ground, being surrounded by other people in that crazy mindset as well, was just so valuable. And so, you know, you could always reach out and ask someone an insane question and they'd have an answer for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, 100%. Just the best people, just all of them. And actually, so random thing. Did did you have a face for the Biz Dojo in Christchurch? We did, yes. Okay, so we had one in Wellington as well. And you know how they all had different colours with like yes. um someone does marketing. Like developers does,
1: and yeah, yeah.
0: So that was where the like initial idea for the Unicorn Factory website came from. Is that right? That's awesome. Yeah, because um, it, when I started, I was like working, uh, I was basically helping some of the startups in, that I was working with in the biz, get work. And then eventually I was like, this is like the coolest system ever in terms of like networking with people because yeah. you can kind of see what everyone does. So if you want to ask questions, and then I was kind of like, this should be like accessible to anyone. Also, like, people who are not working from a co-working space. So, that's a little side tangent. That's awesome.
1: That's a nice piece of trivia. I like
0: it. I know. That will come up in a quiz question one day. And if you've watched the video up until this point, you'll know the answer. So, do you still go <laughs> Do you still go and co-work? Um, it's now called Saltworks, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. So, it's just recently been uh, rebranded. I haven't been in there since they've done that. Although, I keep an eye... I'm always... Uh, engaging with their social media and stuff and keeping on on everything that leon's up to because it just seems like he's going from strength to strength over there so i haven't been in a while but i'm probably overdue yeah Uh, as a general concept i really do like co-working i have i've actually tried over the last five years i've I've tried a a couple of different spaces in christchurch and they all have a different personality and they're all really unique and interesting in that way and i think that there is such huge value and future in that model as well i don't think that bricks and mortar businesses with people sitting in stagnant office spaces is the way the world is going, and so I suspect that it will be remote work. Either you know people fully remote, like I am at the moment, or in co-working spaces that they share with other businesses. And I think there's huge benefits to that.
0: Yeah. So it, could you kind of, uh, so, in your opinion, uh, what is the value for someone who's just starting off freelancing, potentially just getting into a co-working space and working from there? or do you feel like you're probably better off just trying working from home for starters? I
1: I would suggest that probably in some ways it's industry specific. So particularly if you're working in tech, I think you want to be in a co-working space. Get in a place where you can bounce ideas off of other people in that space. Because if you sit in a vacuum in your garage building a technical thing, then I think you probably for a lot of people, there are repercussions of that. Um, and I think it's it's quite good to build that network, especially if you're in quite a you know a sort of introverted field. Um, yeah. I think... For it depends, yeah, it depends entirely on the kind of work. I think for me with comms, because I so often really have to just put my head down and, and write a thing, it's good for me to have the quiet of a home office. But I look, I would still absolutely consider working periodically from a co working space just to kind of get mm-hmm. that energy around you. And I think if you're brand new and you've got a space nearby that feels like it's full of people that are your people, then absolutely go and do it. Absolutely, because it, th- there's nothing to lose, right?
0: For sure, for sure. Yeah, I kind of see it. I see it exactly the way that you do because I've, I've gone through the process of working from home and working from a co-working space. And I definitely feel like, especially if you want to build your network and just like meet people, you know, um, co-working spaces are the way to go. But to do like a lot of good work Sometimes, you know, I think on average, I had about eight coffees a day in the biz dojo, just so if yeah, people I were asking did, me if I'm keen. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did the same. And look, I made great friends. And I, re- I think that those networks are going to support me long into the future. So it's absolutely invaluable experience. Um, and yeah, I think uh, I, I, would, I would totally consider doing co-working still, like maybe a day a week, uh, just just to continue to kind of cement those relationships and to learn. Look, there are so many amazing tools and new products and things out there in the world that you don't know about if you work in a vacuum. Right. And so I sometimes feel like I'm losing touch with some of the amazing new developments in New Zealand because I'm not in those rooms as much as I used to be.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, let's jump over to Anteater because I know what Anteater is and I think it's phenomenal what you and Pete were working on. But can you give us like a little bit of a rundown of what Anteater is and how it all came about? <laughs>
1: So, when I was doing um, my grad diploma uh, that I mentioned earlier, I, I saw somewhere through friends or social media um, an event that I had never heard of before, but that apparently everyone else in the world has uh, called Startup Weekend, um, mm-hmm. which is for, those, for the few of you who don't know what that is, it's kind of like the 48-hour film festival, right? You sort of incubate a business idea over 54 hours, and then you do a final pitch with a minimum viable product, and it's basically bragging rights. It's not really a, a competition as such. Um, and I remember seeing it and going, okay, well, I'm in business school. I probably should go to that. That seems like a thing to do. And I went and I had never met Peter before. He got up and pitched the idea of edible insects as food. And I had I maybe heard of the idea before, but only in a very remote and removed sense. Um, and I thought he was a crazy person. But... The thing that was really interesting is that, so the, you know, in the first night, anybody who wants to pitches an idea, and then the rest of the room sort of forms teams around their favorite ideas. And I was, I was a bit lost, right? I, and I think I even got forced to pitch, and I, I, people liked my idea, but I didn't want to lead a team. I wasn't really interested in doing that. Um, and I was sort of circling the room, and then Peter, he sort of singled me out. He had lots of people who really wanted to be on his team. Everyone thought this was like a cash cow. They were gonna make money off thugs, um, and he, he sort of singled me out and he said uh, that he needed for for a start, he needed someone that he thought would sort of challenge his personality, which he felt from me from my pitch, but also he needed he needed someone who could cook. He asked me if I could cook. And I said, Yeah, I could make anything taste like food. <laughs> he was like, Can you please me on my team? <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> we spent startup weekend like doing market validation. We had a team of nine. I think we had to end up, we ended up having to cut people because we had too many. And then but the craziest thing happened was that on the second morning, on the Saturday morning, we went out to do our market canvas. And I'm like at the farmer's market in Littleton getting shouted at by people on the street who think I'm a crazy person. Meanwhile, Peter walks himself into um, Roots Restaurant, which at that point was the New Zealand restaurant of the year, just along on the main street in Littleton, and makes a sale for a product we don't have and we don't know how to get. But the the, the best chef in New Zealand has just asked Peter for this very specific species of ants. And and he said yes, because he's Peter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is so good.
1: Suffice to say, we lost Startup Weekend. We turned up with our our minimum viable product was a plastic bin full of crickets. (laughs) 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 We we did not win. but then the week that followed, suddenly, okay, well, we said we're going to find these ants. We better find these ants. And so, and Peter, bless them, he did. It took him a couple of tries. He took in a first attempt, and the chef told him um, in very colorful language what he thought those tasted like and sent him back out in the field. And, uh, and then he managed to find them. And then it was it just snowballed from there. I don't know, like it was, it was a wild ride, Anteater. It was not planned. And suddenly we had traction, suddenly we had sales. We had one of the best vegetarian chefs in Christchurch approach us and say that he wanted to do an insect-based dinner that was basically around a provocative question of if you don't eat meat um, for environmental reasons, is it okay to eat insects? Right. And so we did this beautiful three course insect based din- dinner for vegetarians to provoke this question. If you want to you know, if you if you're environmentally focused vegetarian, is it OK to eat insects? And then we started getting press coverage and the whole thing just like spiraled. And basically, there were a couple of members of our original team who had, had like some interest in progressing, but really didn't like they, a lot of them were students. They didn't really have the time um, or the commitment to sort of to go the full way with it. And so Peter and I made, made the call that we were going to press on on our own and do this as a, as a two-man operation. And basically, we, I mean, a couple of really key things happened. We entered the entree competition through uh, University of Canterbury and won. Um, won both the grand prize and the best business plan prize. So I still, I cite that on my website. I'm an award-winning business plan writer. I won money for that. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, you know, you think it's not a thing, but it's a thing. Um, and so that really gave us some runway to, to actually get out and try and do this thing. And so we like, you know, we got ourselves certified to go and wild harvest these products. We started, we branched out, we started doing hoo grubs and working with indigenous chefs and that, all kinds of crazy stuff we, we ended up getting into I think it was six of the New Zealand three hat restaurants uh, which are like the best in the country and like that was very strong strategic focus to hit the high-end market and Anteater that whole experience like it taught me how to think mm-hmm. right it's like we had this incredibly difficult offer and we had to figure out how to make it work and so so much of that was strategic comms mm-hmm. so much of that was What's the story we're telling? What's the message of that story? How do we make this compelling? And for us, there were a couple of really key things, right? We don't serve anything that doesn't taste like food. You have to want to eat it. It's not a supplement. It's not saving the world. It's a food product and you have to enjoy it as a food product. And if you don't, we dropped it from our offering because we just didn't believe in trying to guilt people into something. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's so, so the biggest learning curve, I think I learned more in the three years that we ran that business than I did in the 10 years before that. Um, and ultimately, we got to, I think it was 2018, uh, 2017, we made like big plays, we were trying really hard to get ourselves certified for export, we got to the final round of a bid for like $3 million with Lincoln University to try and set up a hoo-hoo farm, we were trying to like, we were doing all of our kind of big scale growth options and we got to a point where one by one they just didn't quite work out Mm -hmm. right and so we had to make a really difficult call that said look either this is the wrong product or the wrong time or the wrong market and we have given it absolutely everything we have but for right now we're gonna we're gonna wind it down uh we still have all the ip if the world catches up and decides that they really want to make insects a key part of their diet we'll be ready for them um but in the meantime we've sort of we've gone on to do things in in our previous fields um but we stay in close contact and we're still you know he's family he's father for sure forever
0: that's an amazing story and i just the the one thing that stood out about what you did to me was the garage project beer that you did.
1: That was a big one. Eh? it was so awesome. It's, I still have it. Hang I'm gonna hang on. Get it. <laughs> it sits on a shelf in my house, our park, um, with our awesome little Antheater logo on the back.
0: That is and it was one of the,
1: like, one of the best things that we would ever did. And I remember we turned up at Beer Fest in Christchurch the year after they made it, and it was on draft. And we were like, what? And then I think we drank most of it, actually, to be fair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's such an impressive, like, story and, like, business that you two set up. And, like, like you know, like, the fact that it can pop up any day again Especially now that everyone knows that the anti-the beer is out there, um, is incredibly yeah, exciting. Yeah, go ask Garage
1: Project to run it again. If you ask them to run it again, I'm sure Peter will be out, far foraging for, 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 for ants at no time.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so awesome! Um, but yeah, like that. I, I would assume as a, a stri- as a storyteller, telling the story of eating ants or crickets must be quite the challenging one. So like, was it, how did, how do you even approach that? How do you even start? Um, it was,
1: I, we, we focused so much on the experience, I think in the early days, I'm just gonna close this curtain because surprisingly there's actually sun. <laughs> 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 which, uh, which doesn't often happen in the Christchurch winter, but there we go. Um. Yes, yeah, so we focused so much on the learning part of, of that experience, um, and one of the things that was always really important to me, and part of the reason why authentic storytelling is has ended up being the name of my brand, is mm-hmm. that we, we just refused to tell stories that we didn't believe. We refused to sell products that we wouldn't eat uh, or claim things about them that we didn't think were true, and I think... In some ways, that was very unique in that industry. Um, I think a lot of people really, in alternative protein as a whole, not actually just specifically in insect protein, people really want to tell you uh, a story about how this product's gonna change the world and you, this is what you need to be eating instead of beef or lamb, because uh, otherwise we're, we're not gonna make it through 2050. Um, and whilst some of those things may be true, we, we recognize food products as as what they are they are, they're a sensory experience. They're comfortable. They're, they're they're meant to be enjoyable, right? It's like telling someone to listen to music they hate. You can't do that. You mm-hmm. have to let them. You have to let them enjoy the product. And so, we a lot of trial and error at the beginning. A lot. We tried. I mean, cricket powder or cricket flour, as it's sometimes called, was the primary product in the market at that point. And we tried it, and I cooked with it, and I worked with it, and I could not make it something I wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, not in any quantity that substantiated any of the claims behind it, right? Like, oh, it's a protein supplement. Well, no, it's not a protein supplement. If you're using one teaspoon of it in a muffin, you know, like it's not, no, it's not really. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you use any more than that, it starts to taste like fish meal. So I don't really know why. (laughs) I don't know how those claims have held up, but I know that those products were really, investor-friendly, right? So you told some, you told an investor that this was the solution. You were like, okay, well, we're going to make cricket protein bars, and that's the product. And that's one of the things that Peter and I always refused to do. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't know what the product was. We were on a, a journey to find out, and we were working with really high-end food producers who could tell us, who could describe those products in ways that we couldn't. I remember once, really early on, I think it was the same vegetarian chef, described the flavor of The ants is having a blue cheese aftertaste. Um, The lemongrass, lemongrass ants were the name of the product. But yeah, lemongrass flavor with a blue cheese aftertaste. And I didn't get it for the longest time. I didn't get it. I was like, I don't understand that description at all. He just must have a more sophisticated palate than me. And then like months later, I was eating something with blue cheese in it. And I was like, my God, that tastes like ants. (laughs) <laughs> and, so, and so it was just it was very much listening again it's like you know as a, going back to the very beginning you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you right and people mm-hmm. so for us with ant it was people with better palates how does this taste what do you think it tastes like what do, how do you think we could apply it in a food product in a way that makes sense and so much of that learning I've applied elsewhere as well you know it's like because now I have to get out in the world and tell them I'm gonna figure out how to make River is drinkable, right? And so, it's not actually any less audacious of a claim than getting New Zealand to eat insects instead of beef or lamb. Um, And so, so much of that is, you know, sort of looking inward and acknowledging the ways that that may or may not be possible, and the ways in which the story isn't as straightforward as you as you would hope it would be, Um, Mm -hmm. and being as authentic as you can about how that journey unfolds.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, did
1: that answer your question? I feel like I went full waffle there.
0: No, uh, it, it did. And honestly, it's, I, I think it's just so amazing what you've done, you know, and it, and it just ties everything in together so nicely. So good. so I, I reserved this last section of the interview um, to basically get some tips and tricks on anyone who might be considering getting into storytelling or freelancing. What are like some of the the, the key things that you've learned about um, working for yourself that you'd like to pass on to up-and-comers? Uh,
1: yeah, so I will, um, I will put my hand up immediately and say that I am still learning. So I, I and I think I probably will be forever. Um, but I, I have taken a couple of runs at, at being freelance or at working for myself in various kinds of ways. And I think with each experience, I do fine-tune and get better. Um, some of the key things that I have learned Uh. And that actually I think Anteaters really helped me with is that I I now look at myself as a product when I'm dealing with new clients, which I think that you have to. I think a lot of freelancers and entrepreneurs look at themselves and their times as an inexhaustible resource, and that's just not true. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at yourself and your time as though it is a finite resource and make sure that you are being compensated appropriately for it right? So be honest with yourself about what you're worth and ask for it. You'll be su- surprised at how many clients will respect that and will give it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other really key thing, I think for me, uh, in terms of, of the the kind of structure of my work has been, uh, 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 I'll, I'll make it a soundbite, say yes to everything, but set boundaries first, mm-hmm. right? And so that's and actually, especially in lockdown, that's really helped me kind of get my head around that boundary setting. So I, I almost never say no to a piece of work, almost never. But I try really hard to be quite realistic with myself about how much capacity I have, what the actual timelines are of what I'm being asked to do, and make sure that I'm always, always uh, under-promising and over-delivering, Always. Uh, which I think is key for anybody in any kind of new business is to make sure that you're never, ever um, over-promising and under-delivering. But setting those boundaries, I think is so key, especially when you've got a lot of clients that you're juggling, because every one of them thinks they're the most important. And of course they do. Making sure that you've, you set clear expectations with them about how quickly you can turn around work. And if you've got if you're on retainer for other clients when you've got block book time. So I actually can't take calls from you on Wednesday mornings because I've got a meeting with this client that, that is fixed in my diary or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Lockdown, I think, as I say, was really, really critical for that for me, because I think what happened was a lot of us, you know, or I certainly felt like suddenly everyone had access to me all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I was working less in a lot of ways, but there was no, it was quite amorphous how I was working, right? It was like, you know, I would be working fewer hours overall, but I felt like I was sort of on call all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, I felt like I was always having, um, effectively inviting people into my home for meetings as well, um, through, through Zoom and other, and other web chat programs. So just being really clear on the boundaries that you need in order to make yourself successful. Um, and a lot of times for me, that is very much about focus. So it's about not taking calls from Clients, When I'm working on another client's piece of work, it's about setting aside time in my diary to work on specific things. It's about using every available tool to keep myself organized, whatever your online to-do list is, your online calendar, swear by them, make sure that you just keep your life as organized as you possibly can so that you are giving the most you can to everyone in that portfolio Uh, Because otherwise, the the squeakiest wheel will get all your attention, and that's just something to be mindful of. And a lesson that I learn again and again, Um, Mm -hmm. and making sure that every client does feel like that they are the most important client in that period of time when you've set aside time to work for them.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Thanks so much for that advice. I think that is like something that I need to hear because I go through the same experience over and over again as well. So I think that is just so good to hear that. Thanks. How can we find out more about you? Like what is your website, your socials, all that good stuff.
1: Uh, So the best place to find me is on my website uh, www.authenticstorytelling.co.nz and that's got links to my blog and my LinkedIn uh, where you can find samples of my work if you want to look at films I've sound edited or if you want to read profiles that I've written for social enterprises it's all there so it's sort of an online uh, portfolio as it were and it's got all my contact details on it so I'd love to hear from anybody who wants help uh, with strategic comms, project management, business development or uh, when the time comes live event production
0: amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today um i learned so much and i am inspired by all the amazing work that you're doing
1: oh i'm inspired by the amazing work you've done and you really have been this platform has been a lifeline for freelancers post covid so please know that and thank you and thank you to all the people who go there to find us we need to keep doing it i
0: appreciate that all right well that wraps up episode 11 it's a bit of a longer one but i feel there's so many no so good usually (laughs) like long ones are usually a sign that it was very good so um yeah thanks again and i'm looking forward to having you all back for the next one goodbye